So we're going to uh, continue in our Advent series, and today we're going to be looking at not Jesus. Uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Mary. I don't know if you guys ever got to really ruminate or think about the story or the character of Mary, uh, but it was my first time getting really in-depth on this, and I was tremendously challenged, and so I hope the Spirit does the same thing for you guys this morning. Uh, we're going to dive right in, and so we'll walk through our passage, and then we'll draw out some implications at the end, Okay. So, now, if you're well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures, one thing that sticks out about the biblical narrative is that whenever there's a miraculous birth story or announcement, you know that's a sign that God is on the move. Not only in the life of the mother, but, uh, in the, but also in redemptive history. For example, the first miraculous birth story is of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, who got pregnant with God's promise at a very, very old age. And this, was also, and this wasn't only a blessing for this elderly couple who desperately wanted children, but it was also the beginning of God fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Right? What was one of his promises? That he will have a great nation. You can't have a great nation if you don't have people or a son. And so he gave him his first son. You also have the story of Hannah, who was unable to have children, and she famously cries out to God for help, and God gifts her with a son who becomes the prophet Samuel. And these birth stories move the story of God's redemption forward. And in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we find two miraculous birth stories. Uh, the first, we didn't read it, is one of Elizabeth. If you guys remember, Zechariah, her husband, is in the temple doing his duties, and then the angel Gabriel appears before him and promises a child, even in her old age. And the child ends up becoming, do you guys know who the child is? John the Baptist, yes. John the Baptist. And he was given a crucial role, which was to prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of the kingdom of God. And so right from the beginning, Luke is telling us that something of enormous significance is happening in the story that he's telling. Now he adds to that because he doubles down on these miraculous birth stories and gives us the most important birth announcement of all, which is what we'll look at today in the story of Mary. Okay, So let's begin with verse 25. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, the first thing I want you to recognize is that for the Jewish readers at this time, the idea that someone like Mary would receive divine favor would have been very confusing, to say the least. Mary, according to all the socioeconomic categories of that time, was not someone in a position of power or privilege or favor. Okay? First of all, she was living in a patriarchal culture where her value derived from men. And so in her society, she was, quote-unquote, the wrong gender. Uh, there was actually a Jewish prayer. This is so bad. One of the prayers was, thank, God, thank you, Lord, that I was not born a woman. That's how <laughs> patriarchal the society was. Uh, she also did not come from a notable family. And the, Luke actually draws the reader to that by naming the family that Joseph came from, which is the house of David. But there's no mention of the family lineage of Mary. Basically, it wasn't even worth mentioning. Now, even the city that she's in was rural and unimportant. Now, it's important because the angel Gabriel had just come back from the temple 
when he talked to Zechariah, which is the most significant place on earth. And now we see um, the angel Gabriel in Nazareth. And if you guys remember in the Gospel of John, when one of the disciples finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth, do you remember what his immediate response is? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Meaning it was one of the lowliest places that you could ever think of. You wouldn't expect greatness to come out from that town. And here we already see the gospel being fleshed out. One of the main motifs throughout the gospel of Luke is is that Christ and the grace of God is attracted to the lowly and the humble. Those who do not deserve the favor of God. And we see it right here from the very beginning. Now, Luke tells us uh, that Mary is said to be in a state of betrothal uh, with Joseph, which is almost like being engaged. And so she would have been around 12 or 13 years old. Okay? Now, the process of a Jewish marriage was two stages. The first stage was essentially a witnessed agreement. So you agree to marry in front of your family, and then you exchange uh, a financial uh, bride price to kind of confirm, that, uh, confirm the marriage. But what's interesting is at this point, uh, up for a year, I mean, at this point, she's legally her, his husband, but for a year, he w- she would stay within her own family's house. And then after about a year passes, uh, the husband would come, they would have a marriage ceremony, and then he would take her home to be, start their family. And this is where Mary and Joseph found themselves the first part of a two-part process of marriage and their engagement. Now, let's keep going here. Luke writes, But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Now I hope all this Davidic language sounds familiar to you, because it tells us exactly why this is the most important birth announcement. The angel is basically saying that the covenant promises made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we talked about last week, where God promises to David that he's going to raise up a son from his line who will establish the kingdom of God to undo the effects of sin and bring healing and salvation to his people. And the angel is saying that that covenant will now be fulfilled through the child that Mary will bear. Now let's look at the last part really quickly. And here's how Mary responds. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here, Mary asks a very understandable question. How, was, how in the world is this going to happen? And the angel basically says it's going to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. Divine intervention and agency is going to produce this miraculous baby. And this child will be called holy. 
Now, to be holy is not just to be sinless, but it actually means to be set apart for the purposes of God. And then the angel tells her, if you don't believe me, go check on your relative. I don't know if you guys knew, but John the Baptist and uh, Jesus, they're cousins. Um, Go check on her relative, uh, Elizabeth, as proof that what he's saying is true. That even a woman in old age can bear a child through the power of the Holy Spirit. That nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary responds with her famous words to end. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, okay, take a deep breath. Okay. Now, let's, there's so much we could unpack here, but I'm going to just focus on one thing, which is the faith of Mary, her response to the angel. I think this story actually gives us a picture of, of faith that we can learn from, that we can be challenged by. And I think that can even correct some of the misconceptions that we have about what it means to have faith. You see, in the church, we love to tell people to have faith. Whenever you're going through a struggle or a challenge, our go-to response is to have faith. But rarely do we ever define what the content of that faith is or what does it actually look like. And I think Mary's response to God can provide some clarity when it comes to this idea. And this morning, I want to just highlight one thing about Mary's faith that has challenged me. And it's this. What we see is that faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is not the absence of fear. You know, in my experience, we often picture faith-filled people as those who seem to have no fear. They just simply face life's challenges head on as if they have nothing to be afraid of. They respond to God's call in their life with a level of courage that we can't seem to conjure up in our own life. And I think this is part of the reason why we tend to admire people of faith, because most of us struggle with fear, deep fears that keep us from taking risks and living into the vision of God's kingdom for our lives. But I think this is a mixed characterization of faith, and I think this story will correct it for us. Let's begin by putting ourselves into the shoes of this very young woman, 12, 13, in the first century. The call to bear a child, not from her husband, while in her engagement period would have been terrifying. For one, remember, she lived in a patriarchal society where the woman's livelihood, her security, and her protection was deeply dependent on men, especially her husband. And this is why in in their tradition, one of their traditions was if her husband would die, the father-in-law by custom would give the youngest son to her in marriage uh, in order to protect her. Because without a husband, a, a woman would be incredibly vulnerable. And for Mary, what makes it so bad is that people would automatically assume what? That she cheated, that she committed adultery, that she was not faithful to her fiance. And so divorce would have been inevitable. Now, not only that, she also lives in a collectivist society that operates from honor and shame. So in that culture, right, your family's dignity and the name of your family was of the utmost importance. There is nothing more important in an honor-shame culture than the dignity and the name of your family. And to attract any unwanted attention would have been the worst mistake that she could have made. And so from a sociological perspective, this was a major risk. This was, she was essentially risking her life. But maybe worst of all, she had to tell her fiancé, Joseph, that she was pregnant. I mean, can you imagine how that conversation would have went? Mary would have been like, I'm pregnant, but I swear I didn't cheat on you. It was the Holy Spirit who gave me this child. 
Like what man would believe you? Would you believe your spouse if, if they said that to you, right? You will either think Mary was straight up lying or that she was crazy and that you need to run away from this marriage. So divorce was the only reasonable response that Joseph could have given. Now lastly, I think to add to that, even theologically on a personal level, there must have been so much fear. This lowly girl carrying the hope of the world in her womb. You know, if you talk to moms, um, they deal with a lot of fears when it comes to motherhood, right? Fears about not being a good enough parent, making sure you're healthy, having enough, having enough and preparing for the birth. There's so much that goes into motherhood that if you're not a mom, you will never understand. But can you imagine being told that you will carry not just a regular child, but the very hope, savior, and king of the world? And she's like 12, I mean, what did you know at 12 years old? When I think about me at 12, I was literally confused about everything. That's when like puberty basically starts, right? You have no idea what's going on and let alone know how to care for another person. See, I want to make sure I want to point this out because I think we're so familiar with the story of Mary that we kind of just glanced over it. But this was not a light call. There was so much fear and so many reasons to be afraid. But she responds in faith, in trust, in obedience to God, saying, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You see, what we learn from Mary is that faith is not obedience to God in the absence of fear, but faith is obedience and trust in the face of our fears. To take a step of faith, by definition, means to walk into a space of your fears, into the space of uncertainty and of risk. You know, for example, if a guy asks out a girl on a date and he knows for certainty that she will say yes, that's not a step of faith. That's just a step that he's taking. But if he asks a girl out with the possibility of rejection, that there will be, you know, the fear of saying no, that is a step of faith. And so the presence of fear is not always indicative of a lack of faith. You only lack faith if you allow your fears to keep you from trusting God and his call in your life. Only if you are mastered by your fears more than God. Now, I'm wrestling with, uh, I was wrestling with where to take this, but, you know, one thing, if you ask like five of the closest people to me, what has driven my life, uh, at least up until the last few years, it would be fear. And so this was really challenging to me. And I was kind of thinking about, should I do a couple points? But I'm just going to stick to one point. And let me just explain what I've been kind of thinking about. You know, recently I heard a saying uh, that struck a deep chord with me, and it's been ruminating in my mind for a few weeks. But this person said that the greatest joys of our life are always on the other side of our greatest fears. Okay? The greatest joys of our life are always on the other side of our greatest fears. And the more I reflect on my own life, the truer this statement becomes. I mean, think about your biggest fears. I mean, really think about it. Not like, oh, I'm afraid of heights or whatever like that. Like your deepest core fears. Why are those your biggest fears? It's because our deepest fears are always connected to the things that we treasure most. We fear that which threatens our treasures, the things that we value. For example, for some of you, your biggest fear is the fear of failure. Because one of your greatest treasures is success and the way that it gives you a sense of identity and value. 
You fear failure because it might take away your identity and reputation as a successful person or as a worthwhile person. For those of you, it might be a fear of rejection because what you treasure most is acceptance and the opinion of other people. This is how our core fears work. And here's the problem with uh, this type of fear. It paralyzes you. It keeps you in a state of self-preservation and self-protection, unwilling to fully go after the things our hearts truly desire. And so we end up living a life of safety and comfort, but no true joy and never really experiencing the fullness of what life and God has to offer you. You know, it's kind of like this. It's a really silly example, but it's been snowing a lot, so it's an example that came to my mind. But it's kind of like if you love snowboarding. How many of you snowboard here? Got not, oh, I thought there would be more, but maybe not. Uh, so if you love snowboarding, but because you fear falling or you fear getting hurt or you're afraid of heights, you only go on the bunny slope, right? Going on the black diamond is too scary for you. And, but you know, bunny slope is kind of snowboarding, but not really, right? You're safe, and it can be kind of fun to an extent. But because of fear, you're only experiencing such a small taste of what it means to truly snowboard. You're missing out on the beautiful view. Uh, I don't know if you guys have really nice views up, but we've, in California, there's a mammoth mountain. If you go up there, it's amazing. You're like above the clouds. You will never be able to see that. Or like the exhilaration of going down really fast, carving, right, doing jumps, or even hanging out with people, uh, right? You'd be the only one down at the bunny slopes, so you will never experience anything else, right? Meaning you haven't experienced the highest level of joy that snowboarding can offer you because of fear. You've only scratched the surface of what it could be. And this is, if you're honest with yourself, this is how so many of us live our lives. We let our fears dictate our decisions and the way that we live, and we never truly live. You know, personally, uh, like I said, I'm a very fear-driven person, and this was so true for me in my early 20s for a period of time where uh, I went through a lot of relational brokenness uh, and a lot of pain uh, through relationships with friends and in romantic relationships. And from then on, I think it was a defense mechanism, but I feared close relationships because I thought it would happen again. And there was this need inside of me to constantly protect myself. And I'm sure some of you guys can relate, but I found myself being dictated by my fears when it came to people. And the minute I would get close to someone, I would push them away. It was like a natural reaction because I was doing it unknowingly. And looking back, I missed out on some great friendships that could have been so life-giving. But because fear did not allow me to take a risk of being intimate with people, because I wanted to remain safe, I lost out on so much joy that I could have experienced, even though it was the very thing that my heart desperately wanted. I felt so bound to it. Some of you are so enslaved to your fears, and you have just tasted just the appetizer of what life has to offer you. What fears are keeping you from experiencing the fullness of life? Now, what's more is, if you think about it, I think this is why the Christian life is so hard. Because what does it mean to follow Jesus? It's a life of faith. And a life of faith means walking obediently into the spaces of fear and uncertainty. If you think about it, God is constantly calling us to confront our fears in the pursuit of his kingdom. I mean, if you really think about the Sermon on the Mount, 
that is a scary way to live. It's scary to live a life of self-denial or generosity, fearing that we won't have enough or not living for the opinion of other people and only God himself. It's scary loving people the way that God has called us to because we've been hurt by our relationships ourselves. And one thing you'll notice for many of us who've walked kind of this path of towards pursuing God a little longer, when God transforms you and he begins to work on you, for some reason he always makes you face your fears. He calls you to face it dead on and not numb, and not numb it and run away. Because here's the thing. It seems, like I said, the greatest thing that God gives us oftentimes is on the other side of these fears. Think about it. This is almost a story of every character in the Bible. From the very beginning, Abraham is called by God to leave his hand with no idea where he's going to leave his family and his community into the unknown. He had to confront his fear of uncertainty. Moses encounters God in the burning bush. And what does God tell him to do? To go back to Egypt which is his greatest fear because he had murdered an Egyptian. He's a wanted man, so he could die when he goes back. Not only does he want him to go back, but he wants him to lead his people out of Egypt in the face of the greatest empire at that time. You have um, Joshua taking the place of this great leader named Moses. Like, you wouldn't want to fill his shoes, but you are called to fill the shoes of Moses and go into the land where you, with your own eyes, saw giants living there. And then you have Daniel, who had been called by God to remain faithful in the face of the Babylonian Empire and in the face of real possibility of death at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. And the disciples, they had to leave their nets and their livelihood and face the Roman Empire with the real possibility of being crucified by the Romans. But here's the thing. Where do you think these people experienced their greatest joy? It was by walking through the path of their greatest fears and not by running away. Abraham received a promise and a son by walking this path. Moses was able to lead an entire nation and experience such nearness with God at the top of the mountain that he would have never had if he remained in Midian. Joshua was able to enter into the promised land and, and into a land flowing with milk and honey. Daniel experienced miracles, right? He was saved from the mouth of lions. He saw God in the furnace. The disciples got to start the church. These lowly fishermen, no one would have ever talked about them in history, but because they faced their fears, they began to they started the church, and their names are talked about forever. Their greatest joys would have never been experienced if they had allowed fear to dictate their lives. I mean, even Mary got to experience her greatest joy of birthing the Savior. See, following Jesus is scary. I don't want to be a church where I tell you it's going to be all good and it's going to be easy. But one thing I realized, when God begins to work on someone, initially they have a spiritual high, and all of a sudden all their fears and issues and insecurities begin to rise. And what God is calling you at that moment, that's actually not a sign that something bad is happening. That's actually God working in your life. And he's calling you to face it. Because on the other side of that process is where your greatest joy and transformation will take place. Can I give you one example just to put the nail in the coffin on this? Jesus himself. Do you guys remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Right? When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't like nonchalant, like, oh yeah, it's cool. Like, I know what's gonna happen, I'm just gonna do, do this, whatever. It's right. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, literally sweating blood. 
And that's not a hyperbole. That's an actual medical condition that can happen. And he wasn't just fearing like physical pain. He was fearing separation from the Father, this perfect relationship that he's had for all of eternity, to be separated from him when the wrath of God will be poured on him because of our sins. And he even says words that we thought Jesus would never be able to say. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, if I don't have to do it, can I pass on this? But it was only by walking through his greatest fear and distress that he experienced an abounding joy. How do I know this? Hebrews 12.2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is how life works. As I come to a close here, do you guys know what is by far the most stated and repeated command in the Old Testament and New Testament? Genesis to Revelation. It's do not be afraid. Do not be, do not fear. Because fear is what paralyzes us from fully living our lives for God. And I want to ask you a question. Has fear kept you from fully living your life? Are you living a life of safety, of self-protection, of self-preservation? Has it kept you from fully experiencing who God is? And I believe God wants to deal with that in your life. He wants to free you. You see, the key is in Mary's response. It's in her famous words. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you see that? She is the servant of the Lord, meaning her master is not fear, but God himself. More than having a heart of courage, faith in that overcomes fear is a faith of surrender. It is naming our fears, allowing our fe- knowing that we have fears, but bringing it before God and allowing him to transform it. You see, the problem for most of us is when we have fear, we look at the fear. Our eyes are fixated on the fear. We worry about it. We're anxious about it. But God has given this amazing tool called prayer. And he's saying, name it before me. And then he will lift your eyes up to him, and he will transform that fear into faith. That is how you battle. It's not by rationalizing. Oh, it's not that bad. It's okay. I can do this. Your own hyping yourself up will only last for so long. But it's when you bring it before God and you name it and you really ask him to give you faith, that's when faith rises in your life. You know, I don't know if I was going to share this, uh, but like I said, like fear has been driven for so long, driven me for so long. And I would say I've been in ministry for 12 years, and I would say the first 11 years was fear-based. And throughout those 11 years, because I think my biggest fear is fear of other people, and I've shared like Getting up here is like a miracle for me. But for the first 11, I had so many opportunities where I was asked to guest preach. I, was, I had ministry opportunities. But I always figured out a way to say no because I was afraid of how, what people might think of me. And there could have been so much more in those 11 years that I could have experienced. But because fear kept me from actually stepping into those places, I lost out on those things. And to be honest, coming here was the breaking point. And this is the first time that I feel like my ministry is not out of fear, but out of vision and out of joy. 
right? And, I, and to be honest, in a lot of ways, it should be the hardest being here because I'm away from home, but I'm enjoying it, right? And there's so much that God wants to give us. But he needs you to take that step of faith and name your fears before him. Okay, let's pray. Uh, I want to invite you to stand at this moment.